A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 158 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, and your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as on Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the exuberant joy one feels in watching a Star Wars film, the EU guru himself, the count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, hello, everybody. How's it going, Professor? Oh, I have changed professions, my friend. I'm a teacher now instead of a babysitter. Excellent. So psyched. Yeah, I started my uh, the online teaching job officially with students yesterday, as of the time that we're recording this. And it, it made for a hectic day today in terms of answering emails and uh, setting up retest opportunities and things like that and answering questions for the students and calling parents to make sure they didn't have any questions about the system and everything. But I'm... I'm amazed by how much you get done as a teacher when you're facilitating things as opposed to dealing with discipline crap all the time. I mean, I'm sitting here with three computers open, one for my stuff and then two for the school stuff laid out in front of me like it's the freaking Matrix, you know, and just <laughs> tearing through stuff. It made for a pretty decent kind of day. It's it's been uh, – it seems like it's going to be even better than I expected it to be, though I'm sure there will be some – twist around the corner at some point you know you got to call your new uh teaching office the grid the grid a digital frontier <laughs> shoot be nice if i had an office i'm i'm i was doing that today in the exact same place that i'm recording this episode sitting on the floor in the living room with everything sitting on rubbermaid tubs because i didn't have anywhere else to put it <laughs> That sounds like one of those kumbaya, Nathan, kumbaya. That's true. It does feel like I'm <laughs> sitting at camp. Um, one interesting thing came in today, though. Uh, we're gonna One of those things that we've been talking about so much has been the whole issue of canon versus legends and all that and, and the announcement and how it's being perceived by the fan community and whatnot. And just so happened that for the first time in a while, an issue of Insider arrived for me that wasn't even a little dinged. It was nice. We do have a new male person. Makes me wonder if the other one was just a douchebag. Um, but in this new issue of Star Wars Insider, it's number 155 for March. Just came in. I almost never get these before I see other people posting about it, so maybe I was just really, really lucky. There is a question and answer segment in here with Shelley Shapiro, okay? uh, who has been uh, one of the huge forces when it comes to Star Wars Publishing, being an editor at Delray. And they asked her specifically about the Legends thing, and I knew you hadn't seen this yet, so I wanted to kind of drop this in here and get your thoughts, and then I'll give my thoughts, because this, I don't know, there, there was a moment a while back on one of our listeners' uh, Facebook pages. They were talking about, it was Kenny Crayley, he was talking about 
his top Star Wars things for the year and kind of like looking back on the year. And a conversation got going in which basically we were falsely called out for supposedly spreading false information about the nature of the idea of Legends as a separate timeline, a separate continuity, essentially saying no canon is it, don't they've never said anything like that. They've never given any sense that this is meant to be a separate thing. Um, there's just canon and everything else is basically just trashed garbage, whatever. And between that and these comments by Shapiro, it kind of caused me to rearrange some of my way of thinking about how to express what it is that's going on. Not so much the concept because the concept is, you know, kind of, it is what it is, but a way to express it and make sense of it and why the legends banner makes perfect sense. This is what uh, was asked and answered. What was asked was, speaking of fans, there was a backlash from some of them after the Legends announcement. What would you say to fans who feel slighted? I find it kind of a shock that they even asked the question, but they did. And what Shelley Shapiro of Del Rey says is, I would say, I'm sorry. We love Legends just as much as anyone else. I think it's a huge opportunity to make a brand new when I say new, I mean new readers and their experience, direction for a world. I mean, how often do we get to retell history completely? But it is interesting. Historians get disappointed sometimes in real life because they're wedded to a view of things, or they teach it, and all of a sudden a new tomb is found or an old letter is found, and history has changed because new information has come to light. It does happen occasionally. That's sort of the way I view this. We find out that these were stories people told in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago, right? And now we find out that the storytellers embellished a lot, and now we know a whole lot more of what really happened. So we're going to be able to tell the history more accurately. Wanted to get your thoughts on the way she's presented it there. That just sounds like the classic EU status quo right there. Oh, we've got conflicting things here. Well, that's because the storytellers were always telling it differently, and the only storyteller who really matters is George Lucas. Now, because she's from Delray, I have to ask, is this is she the Lucas licensing side of things? Is she one of those that was always trying to tell us it was all one continuity from the start? She was certainly one of the guiding people, and usually when she talked about it, I mean, she... I don't think she ever said, you know, this is on par with the films or anything like that, but she was one of the people out there talking about how great it is, you know, that this is all meant to fit together and we have this growing special continuity, official continuation, blah, blah, blah. You know, she... She was touting the expanded universe and the continuity technically, but she wasn't getting into any kind of disingenuous grounds. But I guess that just depends on your perspective of what counts as disingenuous, how far someone can go before, you know, it's like, it's like me walking around telling all kinds of racist jokes. But if I pre preface it by saying, no, I'm not a racist, but yeah, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's, it's just a weird one because it, it seems like, it seems like as we're getting farther away from the legend statement, instead of more clarity, it's like every statement they're doing is just muddying the waters even more. Because it's like, okay, well, we've got the MMO tour going on that's a legends work, but now it sounds like, well, even these legends things could be considered canon if we reference them, which is basically what we were doing with all the Marvel stuff that was S-level canon, that once it got referenced in a book, oh, hey, look, is now a C-level canon. She exists! Like, ah. That just seems to me like a step backwards in a lot of directions. I mean, but at the same time, I get back to what did George say? You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I was one of those fans that I always kind of 
took what George had to say with a grain of salt because he said so many conflicting things. But at the same time, I always did take solace in the fact that he said he never planned to go beyond Return of the Jedi, that it was never Luke's story, it was Anakin's. And then, you know, so there was so much about what Lucas was always saying that I kind of dismissed. But on multiple times, he has mentioned the EU as a parallel universe or as an alternate universe. So, I mean, it's like, there's that side of me that's like, okay, well, they could say all day all they want, but Lucas had always intended it to be something else. It just makes me wonder where they plan on going down the road because you've already got books being wrote where the authors don't even know if this is set in Legends or in canon. And it's kind of like, well, we made this huge issue and we've really ticked off a lot of fans. So, you know, how can we go back to being the way it always was where we're just going to retcon things when we need it? Because it sounds like that's kind of what they're going towards here. Like, in a second, you're going to hear, well, parts of Darth Plagueis fit up until this point. I, I don't know. It seems like there's less clarity the farther we get into this. See, it's funny because I look at this almost the opposite. I don't, I don't think that it necessarily changes the status quo or anything like that. But I think it's interesting in that it gives a little bit of a different perspective on why they chose Legends and how they're viewing it, as opposed to the way that fans are tending to view it at this point. As, oh, it's all been trashed, or um, as, as like an equal footing thing, which is really not supposed to be. Um, first off, she uses that term, legends. I want to kind of dovetail this in with the type of thing that was going on with that poster you know, on Facebook, who was going on and on and on about uh, how you know it's not separate continues, one just doesn't exist, the other one does, that sort of thing. Um, you think about Legends, and there's an argument out there that, you know what, Legends, by calling it that, it's like saying it's all imaginary. None of it exists at all. None of it could possibly exist. Um, it's not its own continuity. It's all just sort of made up inside the person's head. Uh, I think that kind of misses the point of the concept of a legend. First off, they're both fictional, right? Canon mm -hmm. is fictional. Legends is fictional. It's a question of what are they in the eyes of the fake reality that we call the galaxy far, far away and everything. Um, but you think about the idea of legends, and being a legend does not negate the idea of being a continuity, of being a timeline, so to speak, of being a reality, a saga, whatever you want to call it. You take something like the ancient Greeks. If you go back and research the ancient Greeks, there's a lot of conflicting stories they've got about the gods. Uh, plenty of conflicting stories, usually on minor details, in the Legends continuity of Star Wars. But if you go into it and start looking at it, the relationships between the different gods in the Greek mythology usually are consistent. Uh, you know, Zeus is always this, the father of these gods, always the child of these, and here's the different generations of gods. Uh, the stories have different ways of being retold. But the stories themselves tend to stay to certain patterns. The stories tend to stay consistent on who does what. You know, what did Zeus do? What did Icarus do? And so forth. Um, it's this idea that, the thing that I don't get, it's this idea that being a legend negates the idea of something being a continuity, or a timeline, or having a coherent saga to it. Mm. Legends could be random stories, but many times in most cultures throughout history, especially if you're talking classical civilizations and before, their legends, their mythology, if you want to call it that, that they built up around usually their religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs, they had a story unto themselves. They had their own 
continuity, so to speak. Just like if you were to watch the Harry Potter movies, they've got a continuity to it. If you read the Harry Potter books, there's a continuity to it. They don't exactly match up, but they can be seen as two different continuities of the Harry Potter universe, or however you want to put that. So the idea of Legends as a name, meaning not a continuity, it's not a separate thing now that can be enjoyed as its own whole, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense with the term Legends. Of course it can. Um, there's an argument that, well, they haven't said this is an alternate universe that exists on its own kind of stuff. No. But we have been told that it's not the same continuity. It's not the same reality. It's not the same saga as what we're getting with the story group canon stuff. You've heard that, correct? I mean, that's that's the phrasing we've seen, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, here's the thing. If your argument is it's not the same continuity, you are, by definition, acknowledging that there is more than one. Otherwise, you don't have to say it's not the same one. Uh, again, it is a continuity. It is a saga. It's not the one that is deemed true from a Lucasfilm perspective. But, of course... It's a continuity in and of itself. Uh, we've also got this issue where Star Wars has already had alternate timelines. They said, well, even if Lucas said that there's, it's the alternate universe or the parallel universe compared to his films, you know, Star Wars doesn't do alternate universes. Really? Look at the Infinities comics. Look at the Tag and Bink parody comics. Uh, look at something like playing through... Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2, but choosing the dark side. Or playing through the Force Unleashed, choosing the dark side, and going on and doing those DLC missions that they added, the, the ones on the Ultimate Sith Edition. Star Wars has already done the idea of alternate continuities and what-if stories, taking the saga in completely different directions before. The difference is they didn't do it to a large degree. They were always short little timelines. That's why my Star Wars Timeline Gold for years has had an Apocrypha section. Because there are timelines that don't fit with everything else. They're meant to be separate realities. That's essentially what we're seeing here, only we're seeing one that is now freaking gigantic as an alternate version because it's being sort of shifted aside, and this true or truer version, you might call it Earth Prime or Tatooine Prime, so to speak, is the one that is now taking precedence, whereas the other ones are being shuffled off. I'm reminded of like like DC Comics and how they dealt with the Earth 2 stuff in the past and today with what they're doing with Earth 2. Um, Star Wars already had multiple continuities. Uh, but I like the idea that she brought up there of Star Wars being like a history. Because it really highlights that whole concept of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We usually focus on the, well, it's a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, but it's also a long time ago, supposedly. Um, this idea that it's like we're reading a history. We tend to think of these continuities as if everything we see, assume that it's real for that continuity because... We're reading it as it happens. We're reading them as stories being told. We're not reading it as if we're reading a history book unless we're reading something like The Essential Chronology or we're reading The Essential Guide to Warfare or something. But from a perception standpoint, if we look at these as different historical tales, it makes perfect sense that, yeah, you'd have one come in, possibly overwrite the other because of what we've learned. I mean, imagine... You know, years ago, teaching kids, like when I was a kid, teaching us about dinosaurs. You would never have heard them talk about dinosaurs with feathers. Yeah. Ever. Uh, or the brontosaurus being not a brontosaurus. I, it, now we know better. Uh, history tends to do that. Science tends to do that. As we learn more, we alter our perceptions of what is true and what is not. Things, a lot of times, that turned out not to be true, but were believed consistently, 
become our legends, our spiritual tales in some cases. I'm reminded of the Catholic Church, and I know I got some crap, or the team got some crap in some emails uh, from me mentioning the Catholic Church, you know, priest pedophilia scandal from years ago on Rebels Roundtable, sort of as a uh, the butt of a joke, and gotta say, sorry, I'm kind of a societal, satirical humor guy. Uh, I don't think you can have something like that happen and not be the butt of jokes for a very long time. Uh, O.J. Simpson and Michael Jackson were both found not guilty. <laughs> Probably still were, and they're still getting crap, and Jackson's even dead. Um, but I'm reminded of the Catholic Church historically, in that for the longest time they had a geocentric view of the solar system. Earth is at the center, the sun goes around us, right? There's this idea of like Earth going all the way up to heaven, uh, as like concentric rings and whatnot. Then comes Nicholas Copernicus, who theorizes and essentially logically proves the idea that no, it's heliocentric. The sun is at the center, we're going around it, not the other way around. It takes Galileo years later to prove that it was right with that new invention at the time, the telescope. Okay? He winds up being told, you're wrong, recant, and gets put under house arrest for the bulk of the rest of his life. What happens? Science proves, yeah, the sun is at the center. Well, in the middle. It's what everything else is going around. Um, not the earth. When does the Catholic Church finally acknowledge that Galileo and Copernicus were right? The 1990s. That's when it was officially declared. <laughs> There's this sense that legends, history, and science, and new beliefs overriding old ones as we learn better is something that's very natural to the human condition. And to have that be part of Star Wars feels wrong to us if we're not taking it from the perspective of this is a history thing. This is something looking back on the past, not something we're seeing necessarily as it is happening. Um, to say that this is a continuity made up of legends, like, say, the Greek myths, means it's a, still a story unto itself. It just isn't necessarily the story that, at the moment, we are being told by those who are historical, etc., etc., authorities, is the truth. Truth with a capital T, I suppose. I just like canon with a capital C. Uh, I like the way she put that because the more they emphasize the, the idea of the historical idea, what a legend is seems to make this, I guess, a little bit clearer, I think, to people. The idea that, yeah, as Chris Sarasi once said, there are all kinds of windows looking in on the galaxy far, far away. Some of them are clearer than others. Well, so is looking back through history. So is looking at a society's legends. It tells us about them. They're interesting. They tell great stories. But at the same time, they're not necessarily what the truth is. Doesn't mean they get discarded. It simply means we have to recognize it's a lesser validity to that version of, you know, where did life come from? How did Zeus do this? How did the Titans do that? Versus the story of Socrates, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, and the things that we can say more concretely. Um, I really like the profound nature of what she said. I don't know if she meant it to be profound, but to me, it. I think for some that may help sort of conceptualize this in a way where it's not quite as painful, perhaps, for those who are really worried. And at the same time, it's a little bit more uplifting, I think, on the way to view the old continuity, the Legends continuity, for those who are spitting on it, 
than simply turning to them and saying, yeah, well, see, you didn't like the EU because you had to read the books and comics if you liked it, and now it's all canon, so now you've got to read the books. That's kind of spitting in the face of the other people. Mm. I think this makes for a nice, logical way of looking at it that provides a, a middle ground and hopefully can start calming some of the fires. I think the only reason why I find it slightly irksome is because in a lot of ways, that's the same pat answer they gave us any time we would have a forced retcon based off of something in canon that came down. They would always throw that out there of, well, it's all history. And the only historian that we can take for truth is what comes from Lucas. Uh, and that was always the, you know, the pat answer we would get anytime there was an issue. Oh, hey, the Mandalorians and the Clone Wars aren't the same as the ones in the books. Well, that's because the historians didn't have their details wrong. Uh, and I think the issue I have with that, it's like canon always treated the EU as it was legends in that same regard with Lucas always just cherry picking from it. I mean, to me, in a lot of ways, that sounds like nothing has changed well, exactly. in the approach. Um, they, they did do the aspect of there was the clarity for the fans that because there was always that huge aspect between the fans that were saying, you know, the EU never counted. And then you would have people like like Leland that says, well, it's all one continuity. And it's like, well, if it's all one con continuity, then it counted. Right. And then. You had that statement coming going, well, it's now Legends, it's not Canton. So there's that back and forth as to did it count or didn't it? And so I think you also have those people that are like, you know, well, it counted. So it, and as you said, you know, it's still a continuity, whether it's been retitled or whatever. Um, you know, and that's how I look at it with, with Canon as, as Canon's the one that's backstory was reboot because for so long they were telling me that all that EU stuff I was getting was all part of that one continuity, but that one continuity has been shifted over to the side. So there's gotta be a new one. That new one is Canon. So Canon's backstory was, was reset. I think for me, one of the things that really upsets me the most though, is when I think about movies that were made based off of books, you know, Harry Potter, uh, Hunger Games, the Narnia. And then I think about the fact that we're never going to get a movie series of the New Jedi Order. And that's sad. Like, you know, I mean, just thinking of it from an aspect of if it had nothing to do with Star Wars, the New Jedi Order from a story standpoint is a really kick ass story. And that would be awesome to see in film. You know, when I go down and I watch The Hobbit and stuff and I see the orcs with their metal in their in their chest and, and you know, their flesh has grown over the metal and stuff like that, I'm thinking these guys would be awesome to be morphed into the Yuuzhan Vong, you know, stuff like that. And like, I, I like having a canon universe, but at the same time, it would be nice to have them down the road do things that were set from the books, where it was specifically that, you know, oh, well, we're not going to do that Harry Potter set of films because that was already in a book. And well, you know, hey, that books don't sell us films. Really? Really? Well, OK, I guess three quick things is like the end of my my thoughts on this. I know we're taking a while. I know people are probably like, oh, my God, it's that same topic again, but it's. It's a relevant thing. It's going to be relevant for a while. Mm -hmm. So, one, uh, I don't see, I mean, the, the argument of, you know, books don't make good films, obviously that's not necessarily the case anymore, but you generally don't see spin-off books to something being turned into films. You know, it'd be different if Star Wars was a novel series getting turned into films, or if, like you said, New Jedi Order wasn't actually a Star Wars story, it was something else it could have been turned into films. But I don't think we should ever expect to see a spinoff like that turn into a film. Like, no matter how much William Shatner would have liked his Kirk Returns stories <laughs> from the Star Trek stuff uh, to wind up being made into films, not going to happen. Um, on the other hand, though, you made the comment about how, you know, it seems like this is the same old line of bull, uh, or this, at least the same old party line. And in, mm -hmm. to an extent, it is. I mean, if you look at this from, like, a the standpoint of thinking of it as a history, the difference is... 
it, for instance, say right now, maybe you've got people debating over certain aspects of, oh, let's say Julius Caesar's lineage, maybe when he did certain things, uh, is this historian telling an accurate tale of what he did? Oh, it turns out that this historian uh, faked some of the details of this battle to make him sound greater than he was. Here's the real story. That's the kind of things that we tended to get with the EU and the idea that, yeah, in a sense, it was all kind of legend. It was all kind of stories that when the truth of G or T canon would come in, would have to be altered. Um, like Jedi with attachments and whatnot. Well, yeah, that's kind of what we've been getting. It was little things changing mm -hmm. our perceptions on smaller details usually. Yeah. But, the, but it left the whole basically intact. This right now is more the equivalent of if we found out that it turns out that Julius Caesar wasn't a real guy. And that instead it was like a conglomeration of several people that historically the Romans somehow mythologically turned into being one man as a composite like they do in movies for their stories. And it really wasn't one Julius Caesar. It was this guy named Julius and this guy over here named Caesar who they just talked of as if they were one person. That would completely fundamentally alter the way we looked at Roman history of the time and mm -hmm. cause a huge ripple effect. Or, take it another way, it would be if um, they could science – like take a you know, religion, something else that's, you know, has a lot of, of things building off of it. You can argue the semantics of different aspects of, say, Christianity. Um, I mean, stuff that, like that that led to the schism between Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic, eventually between Roman Catholic and Protestant, and so on and so on and so on. Um, different things being learned about Jesus' time might change the way those different uh, denominations of Christianity view themselves and view each other. But if you have some way to go back and prove that Jesus never existed, goodbye Christianity, and fundamentally, our view of the last you know, 2,000 years of history changes in terms of people's actions in relation to religion. So that's kind of what we're getting here. It's basically them coming in and saying, oh, that some of those fundamental bedrocks are going to change. That whole thing you thought you knew turns out it was... A, a, essentially a false narrative. It was a history based on what you knew best at the time, but now here's this coming in and changing it. The difference here being that it still remains intact to read and think of as a continuity as opposed to the idea of, and, and sci-fi fans have to do this a lot, the idea of thinking of this as multiple continuities or alternate realities like Star Wars has already done with Infinities and such as laying that precedent as opposed to the idea of sort of a mono timeline. There's only one timeline. If it changes, that's it. Nothing else exists. There are no alternate realities kind of thing. Um, the other thing I would point out, you, the, the, this is a spiritual analogy in a sense. Um, talk about the idea of, well, you know, one thing can trump something else, and why is this more real than something else? Why is what Lucas says more real than something else? Why can those facts trump these other facts, so to speak? Um, again, another way to look at it is to think of it in terms of religion. You look at a religion, and again, I think the Catholic Church is a perfect example of this, and you've got the canon, which is the holy, the holiest of teachings, the Bible and the Catholic Church's core teachings, but then you're on down to the stuff that's kind of questionable, and then to the Apocrypha, the books that are thought of as authentically of a time period that didn't get included within the Bible because of various decisions being made about their authenticity or their messages at the time. What takes precedence? The canon does. That's why we use the word canon in relation to things like Star Wars now, because the term came to mean through religion. 
this idea of it being sort of like the uh, the uh, uh, authoritative text on a subject uh, or the canon of medicine and things like that back in the day when it came to like scientific or the beginnings of scientific thought, um, say in the Middle East. And what is this other stuff? Oh, for years I called it Apocrypha for that very reason. Because the, the religious analogy in terms of the way to look at the texts has been there kind of all along. That this stuff is the stuff that is more doubtful. Check it out. It's interesting. But understand that this other thing can come in and trump it all if anything more is brought in from that. But unlike a religion, you don't have a lot of – where you don't have a lot of uh, new teachings being added constantly, Star Wars did. What? Pluto's not a planet. <laughs> You know, one thing's for sure, though, moving forward, huge swaths are going to be inaccurate. I mean, these historians have no idea what's going on from Return of the Jedi forward. They were smoking glitteril. This, this is very true. These were basically historians on crack, more or less. This is drugs. This is your continuity on drugs. Any questions? <laughs> Speaking of questions, don't we usually ask tough questions? What are we supposed to be talking about this time? Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you since April of last year. You pondered about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we explore the concept of formats. Be they digital or physical, be they single-issue trade or omnibus. We look at the ups, the downs, the trials and tribulations each fan faces in regards to the formats that best fit our individual collections. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure, Beyond the Films. That's right, and this is another multi-part episode. Think of this uh, as two, as you're sort of thinking about what we're going to be talking about here. But in general, we're talking about different types of formats for novels or prose fiction. We'll be taking a look at different types of formats for video games, different formats for comics, different formats for videos like VHS, Betamax, and that sort of thing, and then a couple of related tie-in topics when it comes to signed items, different formats to that type of process. And then a question that was brought up by one of the Facebook posters uh, when we were talking about this and all the different types as we were getting ready for this, which is when you're dealing with adaptations and tie-ins, do you need to check out all of them across all the different media or can you suffice with just some of it? So lots of different ways we're going to be approaching this was actually a an idea suggested by Jameson Glass a while back, and I think you're hopefully going to find this interesting. A lot of us are collectors of these types of materials. Uh, this isn't really a collecting show, but the nature of the show means that if you're following it and following the different continuities, story group, canon, legends, whatever, then you're going to be facing just these very types of issues. So, Mark, let's start with novels and get your perceptions here first. I'm just going to run through the different types, and then we just kind of have a free-for-all with whatever the topic happens to be. But there's a lot of them, especially for novels and comics. When it comes to novels or prose fiction, we tend to see them printed either in, most of the time, paperback, hardback, sci-fi book club hardbacks, which sometimes collect smaller paperbacks, 
uh, sometimes create hardback versions of things that otherwise don't exist as hardbacks. Uh, we see library binding books, audiobooks, both in abridged and unabridged form, audio dramas, though not nearly as often, anthologies, right, a bunch of stories combined together, sometimes collecting things we've already seen in other media, sometimes new stuff, digital or ebooks, and those ever-elusive advanced reader copies uh, or uncorrected page proofs that we know of usually as ARCs. Thoughts on collecting these? Man, there's so many angles of this. I mean, you know, when this topic came up, the one thing I was thinking about mainly was how it relates to my bookshelves. Uh, I think for most of you listeners out there, I think that's going to be the key thing when it comes to your personal quest with formats. Uh, it comes down to, A, what bookshelf are you putting them on? And, you know, what space do you have to work with? And I think that's going to lead you to the direction you're going into. I myself have always been a paperback first kind of guy. But I do know some people out there that have gone out of their way to collect the sci-fi hardbacks and those kind of things. Uh, so, you know, it, it really comes down to your personal joys in those regards. Um, you know, I went with paperbacks because of two reasons. One, my dad used to collect Star Trek books in the paperback. So for some reason, I just kind of drifted that direction. And then my wife managed to get me a bookshelf from one of the bookstores when they were going out of business and it didn't hold any of the hardbacks. So I was like, oh, I got this huge thing and there was all these Star Wars books. So I was like, I'll just get them all in paperback. Uh, now that we're moving into a world where those books are now legends and we have canon moving forward, I've got another bookshelf that I finally attached off to the side, uh, which you've seen in some of the pictures, I'm sure. That one I plan on putting, you know, my, my hardcovers, the paperbacks, all the stuff I get together uh, all in one. Uh, with my Legends collection, you know, I would get the advanced copies and stuff or I would rush out and get the hardcover. And then a year later when the paperback would come out, I would get the paperback. Um, now, though, I'm going to just hold on to my hardcovers and stuff that I get sent to me early. And that's going to be it. Although I am shifting slowly towards the audiobook. Uh, you know, the, the, the reading of the physical book with the kids, with the scouts, with all the family activities and stuff, it's become much harder to do. So I have been debating and debating and leaning heavily towards it. Got permission from my wife. I am actually going to start dabbling into the audible.com. Uh, you know, the, the advantage of being able to listen to my book on a way home from work at two in the morning uh, is huge right now. You know, there's 15, 20 minutes of doing nothing time, but it's too dark to read. So, you know, I mean, I could get some serious read time through in an audio version. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, when it comes to my novels and even as we get to comics, I mean, that's one of the main things when I'm looking at formats is how is it going to fit on my shelf? Space is a premium for my collection. I don't know. For me, it's always come down to basically what's going to be the best thing if I want to think of this as a collection later. And I don't tend to think of how it looks so much as just, you know, what can I say about this thing? And that got me to the point where generally with Star Wars books, I will always try to get whatever their first version was. So, for instance, you know, A New Hope. The A New Hope novelization, when it first came out, in fact, all of the early Del Rey books, uh, that's Spill Under the Mind's Eye, the other two film adaptations for the classic trilogy, the Han and Lando novels, all originally released in paperback. So I pick those up in paperback and avoid the, the hardbacks because the hardbacks generally were sci-fi book club hardbacks, which was not the regular retail release. Uh, if it's something that came out in hardback, I'd pick it up in hardback. Two reasons. One, 
because it's cool to be able to say I've got this first version of it, but also the fact that I wanted to use it for the Star Wars timeline goal. I didn't want to wind up you know, leaving it sitting there as something not summarized as I waited to finally buy the paperback eventually. Obviously, that wasn't an issue until about 1997 when I started that project, but that is something you can kind of look back on my collection. What did I have before that? Well, one of the, the blights in my collection I felt like for a long time was the fact that I had Heir to the Empire in paperback. Everything else I picked up as it came out, so I got them all in hardbacks. Uh, it took a girl I was dating in the my first year of college to buy me a hardback copy of Heir to the Empire, knowing it was a blight in the collection, um, back off of eBay in the really, really early days of eBay um, to sort of fix that issue. Eventually, that one was done as a giveaway when I got a signed copy of it later on. Um, so to me, it's, it's where did it come through first, and I want to get the story soon. So for me, it's usually hardback instead of paperback. However, I will say that paperback is obviously a much better value most of the time. If you can wait, a paperback is going to give you the same story for a much cheaper price, and a lot of times with Star Wars, especially kind of in the middle of Del Rey's time with the license so far, you usually get something new with it or something mm. collected from somewhere else. Like it's an ebook that was collected elsewhere or, or something like that. You know, or maybe it's a, an original short story like it's tacked into the back of, uh, well, in this case with a hardback, but tacked like eruption back in the back of the Dawn of the Jedi into the Void novel, something like that. So there, there are things to draw you to it, and that's going to draw people to possibly sometimes repurchase a paperback to have that in print, which I eventually did. All the ones that have stuff printed in it that wasn't in print form before, it was just digital. I now have paperbacks of them sitting by my hardbacks. Um, but what, what gets me about the paperbacks is when they try to sort of triple dip, right? right? So they double dip and they say, okay, well, here's this book. Now we're going to include this short story in it. But then they turn around later and re-release it again after there's already been a paperback, maybe with an extra story in it, maybe not. And now we're going to add yet another thing into it. I mean, there were already people who bought the hardbacks, sometimes with variant covers, of the Phantom Menace novelization in hardback. And some people bought it in paperback. But oh wait, here we're going to re-release it again in paperback and add a new mall story into it. Which was cool, and it had been long enough that a lot of folks didn't have a big issue of repurchasing it, but you know, imagine that type of thing happening a year later, two years later. Shadowhunter did the same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. They did that with the paperback of there. Yeah, and that's one of those things where it's a matter, I guess, of the timing of it. You know, am I getting something new, or am I getting screwed? Um, I think of it the same way I think of like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings films, right? The reason why people are so frustrated a lot of times with those films and the extended editions is that you know when you buy the regular edition, they're just going to put the extended one out in a couple of months anyway. Mm -hmm. It's just like people saying, I'm not going to get them because I'm waiting for a box set. Me, I'm waiting for a box set of the extended editions in 3D. Until then, they don't get my money. But it's because of how fast they're saying, buy this again just to get a little extra. Phantom Menace and Shadowhunter I don't think really bothered people because of how long it was since the last time it was out in paperback. But I could mm -hmm. see someone, you know, who hasn't gotten, say, an ebook story as an ebook, and then turning around and saying, the only way to get this is to buy the paperback of something I already have in hardback, and being really frustrated by it. Um, and it causes them still, in many cases, if they're a completionist, to go buy it, which is the point, right? From a marketing standpoint, it's a perfect way to get somebody to repurchase somebody by adding new content into it. Like, what we're going to get to the video games eventually, 
Hey, you bought the Force Unleashed? You bought all the original DLC? Hey, there's this Hoth level that's going to be exclusive. Bullshit! Excuse me. Bullsith. <laughs> you'll have to beep that. Um, that's going to be exclusive to the Ultimate Sith Edition. This is the only place you'll be able to get it. And then they eventually release it anyway as DLC. Why? Because, yeah, I've already purchased this over and over again, but I want that extra little bit. And it draws us in. Um, so there's a case to be made for that, I think. Um, Sci-Fi Book Club, I've never really gotten into, but I've found those who have uh, tend to like the fact that they can find things in hardback that otherwise wouldn't be. Like, I've got A New Hope as a Sci-Fi Book Club hardback. I've got uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye like that. Just not much. But I can see the appeal of that, especially when you've got an omnibus version, like the ones they did for the uh, the Young Jedi Knights that you mm -hmm. otherwise couldn't get somewhere else. Library binding, I've never been a big fan of, um, mainly because, for lack of a better term, it doesn't feel like a real hardback to me. Uh, I know that library binding has gotten better and better over the years. When I think of library binding, I think of old books I used to get from the library when they just sold their extra stuff that never really looked right on the bookshelf. Um, I've got one book in the Saga of Seven Sons by Kevin G. Anderson that was a library binding book beforehand, uh, and thankfully it was only library binding in the crazy super plastic dust jacket thing they put over everything so i was able to remove that and it looks pretty much like a standard retail copy um audiobooks uh definitely the way to go if you do a lot of commuting we've talked about this before it's why i like audiobooks i like being able to pop that kind of stuff in but then again i'm a big talk radio guy so to me i don't need music while i'm driving you can give me something that's that's speaking and it's fine um i will say i'm kind of torn on abridged versus unabridged the completionist in me wants unabridged, right? Because mm -hmm. abridged means something's cut. And yeah. you know, if it's a Star Wars story, I want every little bit. You know, maybe there'll be a time reference in this little thing over here. That's why I tend to get Star Wars books as text instead of as audiobooks, because I want to be able to make those notes and stick those post-it notes inside it to keep track of things so I can put it on the timeline and everything instead of having to make a reference to a time code on a an audiobook or something. Um, but there's something to be said for the brevity of an abridged novel. I mean... The, for instance, we talk about the Stover effect, how I love Revenge of the Sith, and the main reason is because I had heard, it's actually not read, but heard the unabridged audiobook of Matthew Stover's novelization prior to seeing the film and how excited I was by it and the depth that it gave the story. Yeah, but I haven't listened to it since, although I'd kind of like to. Why? Because it's 11 discs. It's <laughs> unabridged. Um, I mean, I went through and, and you know, I'm into history. I listened to the audiobook, the unabridged audiobook of Patriot's History of the United States, my favorite book on U.S. history. That thing was 50-plus hours. I just listened to it a little bit at a time over the span of over a year. Uh, unabridged is more pricey. Unabridged is going to take longer to listen to. You can read, for most people, faster than an unabridged audiobook can read to you. Really? I think that... it depends on the reading level of the person but if you've got a reading level commensurate with an adult and where an adult's reading level should be you can now oh. there's a lot of issues going on right now within education and how reading is becoming the focus with common core because so many kids are way below reading level i i forget the exact statistic but there was a ridiculous number of students at the school where i used to teach um the uh, a few years ago they were talking about like the incoming freshman class that year collectively um, the vast majority, or at least some giant statistic, it may not be a majority, it may have just been like 40% or whatever it was, uh, were coming in with a reading level of basically third grade. 
into high Whoa. school. Um, but if you have, you know, essentially a college level reading level, you will blow through something faster than an unabridged audiobook will tend to, because they tend to to read more slowly in terms of the pacing of their sentences and whatnot. They don't talk fast like Mark and I do. <laughs> you know, another downside and upside to both paperback and hardback. Uh, when it comes to paperback, one of the downsides I have is the spines falling apart. Uh, if I didn't blaze through that paperback right away, uh, that was one of the nice sides about having the hardcovers first was I would read the hardcover. I'd kind of thrash the hardcover and then get a really nice pristine paperback that would sit on my shelf and never get opened again. Uh, but that was like, like Trusa Bakura or Baraka, whichever it's called. Uh, that Akira. one, I, Bar- Baraka is, it, is the dude from Mortal Kombat. I think. I see, and, and I had it wrong right out the gate. I always called it Baraka, and so I, I'm always like, I know I got this Truce wrong. Truce at the guy with swords in his arms. That doesn't sound like yes. to me. No, it doesn't sound. Well, that one's the only one I have that I know I've got to replace. That one. I open it up, and sections of it just fall out. Uh, you know, a lot of yellowing of the pages, that kind of stuff. One of the things I do with the hardbacks is I I take the dust cover off. And I'll read it without the dust cover on. And I leave the dust cover off sitting somewhere nice. And then I'll trash the outside of the book. And when I'm done, I put the dust cover back on it, set yes. it on my shelf. I'm like, oh, it looks so nice and pristine. <laughs> so exactly. that's that's definitely a, an upside when it comes to the hardcovers. And that's the one main reason why when it comes to the new canon books, I'm kind of like, you know, I think I'm okay with doing it all hardcover. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of Star Wars books I've got that have corners that are all dinged all to crap. Because I tend to be uh, – because I – I'm lactose intolerant and have irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. My stomach is usually in a pretty ugly state um, unless I take medication. So I tend to be a bathroom reader. And I can't tell you the number of times it's, you know, I, I take the book, I'm done reading it, I'm going to finish my business, I'm going to sit it up on the counter, and at some point, bam! Yeah, it falls on the floor. It fell. <laughs> I don't know how it fell. It's kind of like the soap falling off the little ledge in the shower. Damned if I know how it happened. But it happened, and it scares the crap out of me every time. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can beat those things up. And the dust jacket, as long as you keep it somewhere nice, you could fit it right on there. I'm always perplexed when I see people reading hardback books with the dust jacket still on it these days. It's such a, a natural thing to me, I guess. Um, we've talked about audiobooks. Audio dramas is another kind of subcategory of that. Things like the way that they fully cast, oh, William Shakespeare's Star Wars or The Jedi Doth Return. Or the way they dealt with things like uh, the Dark Forces graphic novels. Uh, to have an audio drama where every single part is cast as a particular voice actor, and it's not necessarily read to you. It may have narration to it, but it's more like watching TV with the sound off than having someone tell you a story. It's an awesome format, but it's very expensive to be produced on the company's end, so you don't tend to see them that much. I would love to see more audio dramas within Star Wars. I'd be buying a lot more audio stuff. Instead, Mm -hmm. what we usually get is a reader who's really good at changing their inflection to match the way characters speak. They're almost impressionists, but not audio dramas per se, like one person's voice. Like, I would absolutely listen to, I was almost going to say a Star Wars audiobook. I think I'd listen to almost any audiobook if it was read by James Arnold Taylor. The man can do every possible voice, it seems like. That he could create, you know, it's like listening to him doing, you know, didn't he do like How the Grinch Stole Christmas or something? Yeah. Um, the other aspects of this that we haven't gotten to, they're kind of side topics. They're all linked in here. Um, one of them is going to be one that runs a thread through a lot of what we're going to be talking about, the digital side. Uh, but the other three are anthologies, arcs, the early releases, the, the review copies, and the digital editions. Um, anthologies, I'm kind of, 
I don't know. I don't want to say I'm apathetic. I like anthologies when they have new stuff in them. Uh, when they did that Star Wars little free preview thing a couple years ago that they gave out at San Diego Comic-Con, the little booklet that had, for the first time, not in a magazine, you had a bunch of stories in it. I thought that was cool because I was getting it in that kind of form instead of just in the pages of Insider so mm. I could put it with my books. Uh, but if it's something that's just collecting stuff we've seen before and it's not really changing formats or doing anything like that that changes how it would fit in my collection, I usually don't get into it. So, like, for me... Tales from the Most Icy Cantina, Tales of the Bounty Hunters, those things, terrific. Um, Lost Tribe of the Sith collected stories, it adds that story at the end. Terrific. Uh, but then I think about something like Tales from the New Republic and Tales from the Empire. Tales from the New Republic was some stories we'd seen before, but others that were slated for the Star Wars Adventure Journal but never got published because that series ended. So it was a mixture of old and new. So that was okay. But then Tales from the Empire is adventure journal stories. I already own the adventure journals, but I want all the Star Wars books. So it wound up that that type of anthology was me rebuying something I'd already seen before that many people hadn't because they hadn't been reading the adventure journal. So it was a good marketing thing, and to many people it was a welcome release, but to me it felt like it was sort of rehashing old ground. So to me, an anthology, give me something new. Do like... You do sometimes with paperbacks and add something new to it, you will probably get my money. But uh, an anthology that just reprints stuff we've seen before, unless it does something to substan substantially change the format, that I really can't justify purchasing for me. Oh, with the audio dramas, I, for me, my main thing with there is they're few and far that aren't fan-made. Uh, that being said, most of the fan-made ones out there... I mean, unless it's a really shoddy job, they've got a lot of heart put into them. So, you know, I, I definitely enjoy a good audio drama. I like the way that they kind of work out. Uh, it is kind of sad, though, that there aren't many more professionally done ones from uh, Del Rey or Lucasfilm itself. Uh, the anthologies, I do have Jedi Sunrise, Jedi Shadow, which uh, collects some of the uh, Young Jedi Knights or Junior Jedi Knight books. Uh and I, I mean, mainly I just got those because I, at the time I thought they were new books and I was all like, oh, hey, I'll get these. And then I realized what they were. Now, but when it comes can I ask you a question about that? Sure thing. Would you think of those as anthologies or would you think of those more as like an omnibus or is there really no difference between the two? With that one, I would lean more towards it being an omnibus, really, because it, it just feels like two or three of the other books recollected in a bigger book. So, so I would definitely. So wouldn't you then say that something like. I mean, just by comparison, something like the omnibus stuff we got from Dark Horse, they're actually more like anthologies because we think of an anthology as having more stories in it than an omnibus would generally, right? True, and and the omnibuses typically collect things that, you know, sometimes aren't always all in the same one. Like, you know, think about Legacy and stuff where the Honda Car arc uh, was left out of certain, you know, ones and, and put in other ones. It wasn't like it was completely like, hey, here's one through 15 and one through that. Like, they'll put them in a different order sometimes. You know, I, other anthologies, though, uh, you know, you've got the tales of I really I mixed on that. Like, I did enjoy some of the tales stuff. Uh, tales of the Empire had some Koran Horn stuff before you really knew who exactly he was and all his backstory. Uh, Mara Jade had some stories in a couple of them. Uh, Kip Duran, things like that. But with those, I think I'm more excited about the potential 
there. I mean, I have always wanted to see the tales of stuff come back. Like, I don't know. I, I never really kind of saw them as much as anthologies because I came to them after the fact. Like, I, I didn't realize that they were recollections. I thought those were just the books they were at the time. Uh, but I would love to see, like, tales of the New Jedi Order or tales of Rogue Squadron or tales of the Imperial Knights and et cetera. You know, stuff like that. Like, collections of little stories that, that they could tell and throw together. You know, there's plenty of eras that, that especially with Legends, that they walked away from that they could go back. And I, and I really, I lean on the New Jedi Order especially because that was a series that was an era. It wasn't until later they really started to flesh the era out. I mean, for the longest time, it was just the book series. You know, there was very little things that tied into it. Then we had Chewbacca, so we had one comic. You know, and then then we had the ebook uh, with uh, Boba Fett, uh, Practical Man. Uh, you know, little things were added here and there, but slowly through evasion and stuff, then we started to get comics set in that time frame and and stuff like that. But I don't know. I would love to see them go back and flesh out eras in that regard. And I always thought the tales of anthologies would be the best way to do it. I mean, tales of rogue squadron, there were a lot of stuff going on with rogue squadron, especially in the new Jedi order. I mean, at one point we had two rogue squadrons going on and we didn't know what half of them were doing. Like, I don't know the, the potential for the tales of stuff is pretty cool, but I don't know if they would ever do something like that. I would love to see that. And, I would love to be a part of it. <clears throat> anyway, um, that brings us to sort of the elephant in the room when it comes to any type of media right now, and that is digital. Focusing just on books in this case, we'll talk about comics next time, games here in a little bit, video next time as well. Um, when it comes to books, digital format used to mean reading it off your computer screen. Like, oh, I'm going to get one of those first Star Wars ebooks. Now i got to read it in Adobe Acrobat on my computer. Eventually, it gave way to stuff like the Kindle and the Nook, the e-ink screens, where the screens are just as easy on the eyes as a regular book. They don't use a lot of power. They can keep their charge for a very long time because they really only use power to change what's on the screen as opposed to keeping what's on the screen on the screen. Uh, but you don't have lights attached to them. Now, of course, we have apps and such that we can use on all number of devices, and we've got stuff out there like what they're doing with some of the iBooks releases for Star Wars, which is enhancing what we've got. A typical ebook usually is the same text as what you get in the book, and that's it. But now you're getting stuff like the making of Star Wars, the making of The Empire Strikes Back, and so forth, the Jedi Path, where there's special versions put out through one particular digital publisher, or digital uh, uh, storefront, like iBooks, and now there's all kinds of embedded media, like videos and audio clips you can do, and you can change and manipulate what you're seeing, like opening up a map and looking through it and stuff like that. Um, I love the versatility of the digital format when it comes to books. Um, I love the portability of it. When it comes to reading, outside of things that I would get for work, outside of things that I collect like Star Wars books, for the most part, I don't buy physical books anymore. I mean, I've read through all the Harry Dresden stuff, been reading through all the James Rollins Sigma Four stuff and his other stuff, and reading through all the Joe Ledger stuff. Um, I tend to get whole series, but I read them digitally because I can just grab my Nook, pull up the storefront, find a book, click, I've bought it, it's downloaded, I read it, I don't have to carry around something, I don't have to find space to put it afterwards or somebody who wants it afterwards. I just blow through the thing. The biggest concern, though, with digital... Still, I think, is what we're seeing with the, the fears when the, they announced that certain types of Nook weren't going to be, be uh, released anymore 
or supported anymore. It's that idea of what happens if the publisher or whoever it is who hosts those files goes out of business. And that's not the same thing as what's happening with Dark Horse. Dark Horse showed a good way of doing it that we'll talk about when we talk about comics, but the idea that they could say, okay, well, we lost the license. So if you already bought these Star Wars books, we've got the okay for you to be able to still download them or re-download them for your archive from the server because you own these copies, the digital rights to those, because you bought them back when we had the rights. But we can't sell you any new stuff, so it's removed from the storefront. But in that case, Dark Horse is still going. Dark Horse as a company is still going. Dark Horse with its app is still going. Of course, it's still there. If something were to happen to a certain publisher and it makes certain books unavailable, you know, Barnes & Noble might still be there. Amazon would still be there. But what happens if Barnes & Noble completely goes out of business? What happens to the Nook? If Amazon folds, what happens to the Kindle? If you haven't downloaded everything and you don't just keep a good track of the condition of that Nook and that memory card so you don't lose anything or accidentally delete something, in theory, the company's gone. So is everything you bought that you've stored supposedly in the cloud. That, to me, is the biggest worry that I hear, from, especially from collectors, when it comes to any type of digital purchases. What if something happens to my device? Well, now that's not a worry. You can just re-download it from pretty much everywhere. But what happens if the company is gone? There's nowhere to download it from anymore. Aren't I just screwed? I think that comes back to, are you collecting? Are you going to read it again? Or are you someone who gets it, reads it once? and then puts it away. If this is a paperback you were going to buy once, read it, and give it away, or donate it somewhere, or trash it, then hell, what does it matter if the company goes out of business and you can't download it again? You weren't going to read it anyway, unless it's the principle of the thing. But for collecting, then yeah, that's a huge concern. What if your collection just one day, it's just gone, because the mm -hmm. company is. Yeah, that's when you take a trip to your bathroom and empty your stomach contents. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, nothing's worse than that moment of where is all my stuff. Um, when it comes to the digital side of things, I'm a little slow. Uh, you know, slowly getting there. I do remember the uh, the Adobe reading it on the screen. That was always brutal. Uh, the, the Kindle, my wife got a Kindle, and I was doing that for a little while. I, I found being able to take notes with the Kindle was very handy. You know, I thought, oh, hey, I'm going to take notes with this. It'll be great for the podcast. But the problem was, was I took way too many notes. It slowed my reading down. I was, t I was taking more notes and pondering more with the Kindle than it was when I was reading the book. Uh, you know, and with, when it comes to enhanced, I really don't have any experience with those. They sound really cool. Sound like a lot of fun. Uh, but I'm, I'm in that, that group of, I'd be afraid to lose what I have. Although I'm on the fence because, like, you know, I have other books that aren't just Star Wars that sit on my shelf. I don't want to get rid of them because I may someday reread them, even though I have no time to ever read. So, I mean, there is that aspect that I see a definite advantage to going digital. Uh, but I'm one of those that I, I like having the physical collection. I, I don't know what it is. Like, there's this, there's this part of me that's like, you know, <laughs> Holocaust happens tomorrow. I got a Star Wars collection. Like, <laughs> Internet be damned. I've got my books. Like, you can't take it from me. <laughs> and there's that aspect of, you know, digital. It could be taken from me. Uh, you know, I think about uh, Wizards of the Coast and all that, that stuff that got taken and just disappeared overnight. It was gone. Boom. And uh, if you hadn't saved that stuff before... You know, kiss it goodbye because it's just gone. It's just not offered anymore. Uh, and, and that, you know, which is weird because, you know, you hear about this whole aspect of, well, once it's on the Internet, it's there forever. Well, not always. 
Uh, so that's kind of, you know, I don't know for me, like there's that aspect of the internet. I just don't understand. Which is it? Is it there forever? Or where the hell, where the hell did you put it? I, I can't find my star Wars stuff. So I, I understand that fear very well. I mean, I couldn't imagine walking down into my studio and turning and looking at my bookshelf full of paperbacks and they're all gone. Like I've been robbed. That's what happens when it happens digitally. It's the same thing. You've just been robbed, but it was a glitch or it was just business. And what do you do? Who do you complain to? Nobody. You did it to yourself. And so it's like, do you want to commit to that? So I'm like, if I go digital, you know, dang well, I'm going to still have a paperback copy of that. What's funny that you mentioned the whole idea of a glitch and that sort of thing. I remember prior to the note, prior to the Kindle, back in the you must read it, you know, off the screen days, you had the Sony software you could use. I think it was, I know you had the Microsoft software you could use, and there was the uh, PDF-based Acrobat software that you could use. And I forget which one it was, but one of them, I bought some Star Wars eBooks, went back to read them a couple years later after doing some updates on that reader software, and it wouldn't read them anymore. The compatibility was gone. I don't think we have to deal with that now with, you know, Kindle and Nook, unless you're trying to read something that's meant for a color tablet version versus the e-ink version, but even that to a degree is still a concern, or could be a concern if you're dealing with something where it's at all possible that the the hardware or the software you're using to read that file winds up changing so much that the file can't be used anymore. I mean, we're talking about this on the day that Facebook is all abuzz with the fact that thanks to an emulator, uh, the Internet Archive or archive.org just unleashed thousands of DOS games through an emulator. Well, I mean, you almost need something like that to read some of this stuff because the actual programming, my original Star Wars eBooks, they do not open up on these newer models or software, whatever you want to call them. All right, so books looks like on everything else. In a lot of cases, it's sort of down to personal taste. Digital so far for collectors, it seems like we're both kind of on that not for collecting, but for reading okay kind of thing. Yeah, it sounds about like we're on the same page there. <laughs> yeah. I wonder at what point, I mean, just I'm, the, the economist in me coming out from teaching econ for so long, so many years, and I guess I'm, I guess I'm teaching it back now again, um, is to think about it in terms of the supply and demand of it all. Um, by definition, as price declines, the quantity demanded of something rises. So I wonder if it would be possible for them to lower the price of books that are digital to a point where those who buy it physically would instead buy both, or the other way around, right? Take the price of print books down low enough that those who buy digital might still buy the print one as well, but then you get into the whole publishing cost and all the different things that go into making it. Surely there's a price point where people would buy both, but it may not be a price point that the authors could live with, the company could live with, and so on. We want to talk about Barnes & Noble going out of business. That's probably <laughs> the way to do it. Well, and it's, it's supply and demand in the reverse as well. I mean, I, I think about reverse space on my bookshelf, you know. My shelf space is the supply, and as it dwindles, my demand to get more books dips. I mean, there is that aspect of it that I see a definite advantage to going digital. I mean, I, I'm looking at this huge bookshelf next to me and I could think I could have that all on one little device and I wouldn't have to worry about carrying it around. I mean, you know, we're talking about with the books and stuff, even though I'm not reading books as fast as I used to. OK, a new a new dawn. 
right? I got that before it even came out. I'm still only halfway through it, but I promise you this. I've had that book with me every single day, everywhere I go. Even if I'm not able to read it that day, I have it there because there might be a moment where I'm sitting somewhere and I'm waiting for my kid to get out of dance class or I'm waiting for my son to finish a project in Scouts that I might be able to open it up and read a sentence even. You know, I'm just trying to get through it. And that's where my stuff really takes a beating. And then I'm like, okay, well, I've got these books and stuff that are just falling apart because it took me a half a year to read this book. And so it's gotten destroyed in my bag or in my pocket or wherever it's been. So there's that aspect too, because I, you know, sure as heck that I'm not going to let that, that Kindle get knocked around and beat all the heck, you know, (laughs) not like when I just slip a book into my pocket because it's convenient. So, I mean, there's that aspect that as long as the software side of things and, and the, uh, availability online of that product stays there. You're never going to have to worry about the product falling apart, but there's that contingency of ifs. That's true. I got to a point where I was taking my nook back and forth to work, and actually that's a big part of why I was, uh, because I had for a while there been taking paperback books with me to work, cramming them into my bag to take with me, and they'd wind up all dog-eared and beat up, whereas the nook, I've got a protective case around it. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's still fine after all these years. Now, speaking of... After all these years, the next topic is one that is a bit odd. Uh, we're talking format here, not necessarily collecting, but they kind of go together. I mean, the whole purpose, the concept behind this was of us as collecting and reading and, and whatnot, experiencing the galaxy far, far away. It breeds this idea of having to think about formats, which is kind of a collecting thing, kind of just a, a momentary consumer thing, and then who knows what we're ever going to do with it, if we're ever going to collect it or just give it away or whatever. Um, but one oddity, but something that's a major part of the entertainment industry today is video games uh, in terms of formats that you could have these games in. Uh, as far as formats to take a look at, we've got cartridges. We're talking like old school cartridge, like Nintendo Entertainment System, Super Nintendo, uh, Nintendo 64 being the last that really used those. Uh, or you can think of like the smaller ones that are, you can sort of think of them as cartridges, like the little cards, like what we use in, say, a... Uh, a 3DS or in a PlayStation Vita, the little you know SD card-looking things. Um, you could have a physical disc with a C or disc with a K. A uh, disc with a C being like a CD-ROM, a DVD-ROM you might be playing a game off of. Uh, could be a disc with a K, which would be an old-school floppy disc of some kind. Uh, in some cases, not even named ones that we would think of, like, oh, it's that old black floppy. Oh, hey, hey, it's those, those little, like, three-and-a-half-inch floppies, awesome, or hey, it's a CD, it's a DVD, it's a Blu-ray, I know what those are, but something that's proprietary, uh, like the discs that were used in the GameCube, uh, something that's proprietary like the discs used for the Wii or the Wii U, or something that might as well be proprietary for all that anybody used it for anything else in the U.S., like the UMD from the PlayStation Portable, um, the different disc-based things. Then, of course, you've also got digital, and you've got the unique element when it comes to video games versus most of these other formats, except maybe video, depending on how you look at it, and that's cloud-based. One of the things happening in this generation of video games is cloud-based processing and such. Uh, The idea that you have games that are always online and have to be, because a big chunk of what's making the game play isn't actually happening on the system that's sitting in front of you that costs you hundreds of dollars. It's happening somewhere else on a server. So it's sort of part that you have, part that's elsewhere, in some cases, completely elsewhere, like say you're using PlayStation Now or something like that, and you're actually playing games streaming online. Um, 
So digital kind of has a an odd cousin that's a weird hybrid of digital that's there versus digital that's not entirely there. Uh, when it comes to these, again, they all kind of have their their pros and cons. What's your preference right now when it comes to games? Well, let me preface. I used to be a gamer. Uh, I got out of gaming. I mean, I I very casually game now. But I would say uh, when pl- when PlayStation 1, right before they did the PlayStation 2 and the Xbox first came out, uh, my in-laws bought me my Xbox. I, I at that point thought, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get it. I got that one. And then when the Xbox 360 came out, that was kind of where I kind of fell off. Uh, I got the I got the Wii and that was the last gaming system I bought. Uh, after that, we did that thinking, you know, hey, we'll get that one. The kids will have a lot of fun with it. And then I was like, that was a big mistake and been kicking myself ever since. But when I think back, because I still have every system I still own. I have them all. Um, I've got the Nintendo NES. I've got the Super Nintendo. I've got the Genesis. You Good know, all Lord, these things. man. Take that stuff and sell it and pay for your kids' college or at least their college books. <laughs> I, I, well, my roommate was tickled when he found out I still had the light gun and all that. I'm like, oh, two versions of Duck Hunt, too. But, you know, the thing that cracks me up is my old systems still play the games no problem. The worst problem I have with my older systems, the controllers have fully started to fall apart. I never bought replacement controllers, so I've got all these junk controllers. Uh, my Xbox, though, the discs on that, I have disc read error up the wazoo. My PlayStation 2 was the first of those systems to go to the route of nothing will play. It's just disc read error for everything. Uh, I loved the PlayStation 1's black discs. Those ones seemed to never have a problem. I never had any problem with my cartridges, but the disc games, really, and I mean the disc with the C, those ones are the bane of my existence. I have so many of those games that my systems won't play. My Wii won't play the games. My uh, my Xbox doesn't play most of the games. My PlayStation 2 only plays some of the games some of the time. Uh, and it's, it's, it's literally hit or miss. Like you put it in and one game will work today and it might not tomorrow. It drives me up a wall. The, the discs are fine. They are fine. But those readers do not want to read those discs. And it just drives me up a wall because I can pull out my old NES and plug in a game and bloop comes right on. I may have that little blue and red light flicker every now and again where you see it do its thing, but you know you lift that little thing out, pull it a little halfway out, set it back down, and bloop, hey, it comes right back on. Uh, the cloud side of things, I have no experience with it. Uh, I know that when all that went out, there was a lot of people really ticked about the fact that you're buying games but you didn't get your game and, and all that. But again, I, I see the aspect of not having to have your game and, and a, a quality of life there when you're not surrounded by so many possessions. You know, uh, one of the things I always tell my wife that drives me nuts about life is that we are all consumers. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, we consume things and we leave the trash behind. You know, you get a new item and it comes in this gigantic freaking box that you don't even need it that big. But in the end, what are you left with? A trash can full of loose junk because it was just extra packaging. And, you know, you needed that one little item, but we consumed all this other crap in the middle of it all. And I don't know. I mean, the idea of not having to put all this stuff on your storage, you know, shelf and finding a space for it, I can get the appeal of that very well. I nearly got out of gaming. I didn't, but I nearly did, almost. Um, my history with gaming, good lord, it's uh, uh, Nintendo Entertainment System, Super Nintendo, uh, Nintendo 64, 
GameCube, Wii, Wii U, uh, Game Boy, uh, Nintendo DS Lite, uh, 3DS, which I actually just got a new game on the 3DS for the first time in ages. I'm actually playing the freaking 3DS, uh, that Castlevania Mirror of Fate that I finally picked up because I wanted to play it in 3D. Next one, I guess, was Sega. Um, Sega Genesis, Sega CD, never got the 32X, but I did have the Nomad that let you play Genesis games on the go and ate up batteries like nobody's business. Uh, the <laughs> Game Gear that came, that uh, was with it, completely useless purchase it wound up being because I only ever played one freaking game on it. It was freaking Sonic. I could have played on the Genesis. Um, let's see. Uh, Microsoft. Uh, wow. Xbox. Two of them. One that I bought with the with some of the money from writing for Star Wars Tales, uh, and then it died, and I replaced it and wound up with that. Uh, that was back in the day where memory cards wouldn't necessarily transfer over everything because of size or because of what was allowed. So mm. I lost my KOTOR progression and had to start from scratch. That sucked. Um, with an Xbox 360, I've got that Star Wars one from Star Wars Connect, uh, Xbox One. Sony, uh, never had a PlayStation 1, had a PlayStation 2 briefly. Um, kind of near the end of its life cycle. Uh, PlayStation 3, I'm on my third PS3. The first one wound up croaking while playing The Force Unleashed, which was what I bought the system for. And uh, it was within warranty, so Sony replaced it. It was one of those fat 80-gig ones. And then when that one finally died many years later, I got one of those Super Slims, um, uh, which is, I guess, all you can sort of find right now. And then a PlayStation 4 had a PSP Go, which is all digital. And then a PS Vita. So, I mean, I tons of systems throughout my gaming lifetime, and I'm right there with you. The cartridge-based ones, those things seem to last forever. The system may die, but it was kind of rare. Like, my original Game Boy died, but I played that thing like mad. But even when I wound up selling them many years later, uh, my Super Nintendo still worked. My Nintendo 64, my Genesis, still worked mm -hmm. just fine. Um... I imagine the same will probably be able to be said for the Vita and the 3DS and the DS and all these other ones that are basically now those little you know, cards as opposed to cartridges. But yeah, it seems like the ones where you actually have a disc to read, those are the ones you're likely to have the most problems with. But at the same time, I mean, those are also the ones that are more advanced, more recent, and nowadays, I mean, essentially a gaming system is basically a kind of high-end but not really high-end computer. Right? I mean, as far as processing goes and everything, essentially that's how they marketed the PS4 and the Xbox One at one point. Well, so, yeah, when the, when the military is going to go out and grab these things and confiscate them to run their weapons. <laughs> yeah, and when they ban them from other countries because you don't want them to use them to start a weapons program, you know there's some powerful systems. Um, personally, I'm not really a collector of these, oddly enough. Of all things, when I play Star Wars games... I usually just turn around and trade them in years later or I sell them because unlike books that you can read anytime you want or comics to read anytime you want, videos on some formats you'll still have a player for perhaps. With video games, it tends to be that once that generation of consoles is over, or at least the next one's over, you probably don't have the other one anymore. And more and more we're finding that systems don't do backward compatibility anymore. Like I had the ability... Mm -hmm to play, for instance, uh, when I got my DS Lite. It was actually one that was given as a gift to my wife when we were just dating at the time. Um, she never played it, and she just gave it to me. I could go back and not only play the DS games of Star Wars, but I could pop in 
from because they had a little bottom section that's not on the DSi later, I could pop in a Game Boy Advance game. I never owned a Game Boy Advance, but I could still play them because of that. Uh, or I could go through, you know, uh, and on a PS3, especially the early ones, you could play PS2 games and PS1 games and such. So I've made up for not having had a PS1 to play a lot of the old PS1 uh, games. Star Wars games like Masters of Terrace Kasi that sucks, but it sucks in such a fun way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a, it's a, a Tusken Raider named Whore! How awesome is that? Um, <laughs> the one covered up the most has a name that sounds like a prostitute. Um, so, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where, to me, it seems odd to collect unless you're going to keep the systems and keep them hooked up. Otherwise, they become obsolete, says the guy who's got, like, VHS and Betamax and Laserdisc like, <laughs> sitting around here now. Um, and because of that, I've leaned very heavily towards digital when it comes to gaming, especially given the size of the hard drives and such that we get with these new systems. Um, I, I, I had let my GameStop uh, Power Rewards, whatever you want to call it, that subscription thing that lets you get the discounts and that sort of thing, I had let that lapse because it had been a long time since I bought a physical game. Most of the stuff, I'll do a, a digital pre-order, digital download the thing, I'm good to go. Especially now that you can now preload digital pre-orders. Like you pre-order something on PS4, about you know a week or a little bit less than that before it's released, you can download it. You just can't play it yet. As soon as it hits midnight Pacific, you can play the thing. You don't have to go pick it up. You don't have to go drive anywhere. Um, as long as you get the physical space for it, it's great. And, and I don't think I ever would have said that for games early on. I like the idea of having the physical game. Well, what if something happens to the system? I would still like to be able to play it. But because I don't collect it, it's a different mindset to me than with books. I just like the convenience of having the digital version and the fact that I could always go download it again if I wanted to. There is a space management issue. Um, that Castlevania game that I put on the 3DS, I've got a... I don't even know what size memory card this is. He goes, unzip, because it was sitting here because I was playing it earlier while I was you know, waiting for new student stuff to come in. I'm sitting here with a 2-gig SD card sitting in my 3DS. I could do something much, much, much bigger. But I certainly realized the space issue was a concern when I tried to download that Castlevania game and had to delete a couple things, realizing, oh, I don't have the space for it. I've had to do that plenty of times with the uh, the PlayStation Vita. In those cases, it's a matter of, oh, 3DS? Not a biggie. I can always go get a new SD card. Those are cheap enough. But the Vita's got a proprietary memory card. If you don't use theirs, you don't get them at all. And they're still ridiculously expensive even today. So I think it's a matter of sort of space versus what would it cost to upgrade my space if I need to? But honestly, the only thing I really feel like I'm missing by doing digital versions of games most of the time is the fact that I can't go trade them in. The one reason why I re-upped my GameStop membership or whatever you want to call it is because I wanted to pre-order a game that's coming out for PS4 in February, and I had some old games I didn't know what to do with. So I wanted to trade them, figure out, get a little bit more out of it, you know? Uh, the collecting side doesn't play as big a role in it, so digital seems like it has almost all the pros in its category. To me. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the whole 2 gigabyte thing. I know some of my phone games, you know, I run into that issue where I've got pictures up the wazoo on my phone because I use my phone for my camera more often than not. So, like, I got 1,500 photos on my little memory card because I'm just 
taking pictures up the wazoo when I go into a cave. Uh, and then I go to do the next level of the game. And it's like, oh, you got to download some stuff or get some more space. One thing I, I got to say about backwards compatibility, though, like whoever provides backwards compatibility for all their games onto one console wins the video game war. I mean, like the fact that they're moving away from that has always been some asinine maneuver in my mind. It's like I get really frustrated having because I did save all mine. I've got them all in different boxes. And when I want to play one game, I either, you know, swap it out on that TV or like I've got uh, right now up in my bedroom. I've got my PlayStation 2 hooked up. Uh, in my kids' room, the PlayStation One's hooked up. The Wii's also in my bedroom. Uh, the Xbox is in the other bedroom, and then I've got the N64 out in the Lego room. So I mean, I've got different TVs with different systems all set up all throughout the house. Uh, but it would be so nice just to be able to have them all on one. So that's one of those things that just drove me up a wall. I do know that when they went to the digital thing, that whole GameStop and being able to trade in your games was a huge hit for gamers. They hated that. Uh, but one other thing that I haven't really felt like I've talked about so much is the disc with the K games. Uh, you know, the very first games I got into before even Nintendo, the original NES were the X-Wing and TIE Fighter games on PC. Uh, I still have those, you know, and that, and that's, what's crazy is I still have all my games. I collected them all. I, I, if it was star Wars, I didn't throw it away. So I've got them all. And for the longest time, I haven't been able to play them. It's nice that they have created new versions of them on steam and things like that. Uh, but my computers, these are so obsolete, I couldn't play them if I wanted to. And worse, even though they moved on to disc-type games, I bought Galaxies, Galaxies that jumped to hyperspace. My computer was never capable of playing those games. I went out and bought them, though. Never once ran them on my computer. Opened the boxes, looked through the box, looked through the packaging, but I didn't do anything with it. And there it sits behind me right now. Kind of shameful, <laughs> kind of sad, but it's I did it, man. It's okay. You know what I've got for Galaxies? I don't even have the game. A friend of mine bought that big limited edition box set thing. I think it was limited edition when it first came out. Mm -hmm. Got the game, played the game, didn't care about the rest of the stuff, and just said, here, you want this? Nice. So I've got everything but the game <laughs> for <laughs> the big MMO, uh, or at least of its time. Um, relating to uh, the GameStop trading in thing, I will say that one thing that hurt that, I mean, just kind of getting into the gamer topic just briefly, is when they stopped taking trade-ins in DVDs, because I was raking it in, bringing in trade-ins on DVDs. I get, like, whole series <laughs> sets of stuff, watch it, and then turn around and bring it in there, just like nowadays. I tend to sell it to people I know online, just if they want to see something for cheaper. Um, I do agree. Be nice to be able to put everything all on one TV. We've got two TVs in this apartment. One of them is in the bedroom and has the PS3 and PS4 attached to it, but it's also got the Apple TV box. It's also got a cable box, so I had to get one of those little switcher boxes just to have a way to put all the freaking plugs into the TV. The got living to. room now has the cable box, at Xbox 360, the Wii U, and the Xbox One sitting in there, so once again, I had to buy another freaking switcher box and a whole bunch of extra cables. Um... The lack of backward compatibility sucks. I can understand it from a technical standpoint, but it does suck. And it's why, again, collecting this type of thing has never been something I really got into. I never really think about collecting when it comes to video games. As for the cloud-based thing and the discs, um, cloud-based, to me, if it's something that needs the cloud, if it needs to be an online game of some form, Destiny, Defiance, World of Warcraft, great. Do it if you want to do it like that. I don't like the idea that you must have an active high-speed internet connection that must be working at the time, because not everybody necessarily does in different parts of the country, uh, or different parts of the world for that matter, big time. 
um, to be able to play a game, especially when the only thing you're using the cloud for in some cases is verification of, oh, yes, you really do own this game, um, which is something that uh, people were very angry about with Xbox One for a while before they pulled a 180 on the thing. Um, as for discs, you just described why I will never again be a PC gamer. The first way I used a computer back in the day, my dad had a Capro, you know, old school Capro, ran on GW Basic. It basically, no pun intended, was this crappy little box of a computer. The, the keyboard hooked on the front of it. You had to unlatch it and pull it off. And then the screen was totally black with green letters on it. It was the freaking Matrix, except everything typed <laughs> the right direction, not top to bottom. Um, but I used to play like choose your own adventure games like Wampus, if anybody remembers that on there, and Biorhythm, and all kinds of goofy name goofy name games that basically were just another way of saying choose your own adventure text, um, or you know we're running numbers for you type games, and it was fun. But eventually I moved on to you know, a 386. Who that was a huge thing. Then a 486. Oh, that was awesome. And most of the stuff I would play on one would play on another. Or there was a new game coming out I wanted to play. The system wouldn't, but it was right around the time we got a new computer. Anyway, nowadays, it is absolutely so hit and miss what computer will play what game, what will and won't work on this system, that system, with this processor, this graphics card, etc., etc. You will never see me become a PC gamer ever again because I am sick and tired of buying stuff that I can't play or buying mm -hmm. stuff that a year from now I can't play when I've got another computer. Uh, again, it's back to that whole thing like with the the ebooks, right? Are you really going to go back and play them or are you just doing it for the principle of the thing? Maybe it's a little bit of both, but I've been burned way too many times by PCs and games to ever be a PC gamer again. Uh, the days of the discs, when I knew for a while there that the games were actually still going to play, were glory days for me of PC gaming. I don't care how high-end PCs get today, how gorgeous they are even compared to something like the Xbox One or the PlayStation 4. I'm not going to become a PC gamer. I'm done with that crap. Yeah. Well, then there's the aspect of, of the actual gameplay. I mean, I came into online gameplay after it was done for most parts. Uh, you know, I my Xbox, I never played it online. I had Battlefront 1. I had Battlefront 2. But I never got the download content. Uh, no Kit Fisto. No Asajj Ventress. Never got to play any of my friends online. I literally got the internet the month that ended i was like are you kidding me like there's not gonna be any more of this and that was really bummer uh when i think about the game systems i have when i think about the nin 64 uh the games i play on that james bond uh goldeneye the 007 goldeneye and perfect dark which was like goldeneye version 2 where you could have bots still play those uh 1080 goldeneye in space is what i always refer to yes because it was so sci-fi Yes, and it had like two or three levels straight from Bond. I was like, yeah, dude, this is fun. Uh, you know, and then the Battlefront games on the KOTOR. I mean, I still play those. I occasionally play, you know, Knights of the Old Republic, but the Battlefronts were a lot of fun. But I was only playing that with my with whoever came to my house, you know. So after a while, it got to the point where nobody would want to play because I would kill them so fast. You know, I was one of those guys that, that you'd go online with and, and would just be just – you spawn and you're dead i mean that was how it was nobody liked playing with me even i would play easy with people and they would still hate it they knew i was just basically toying with them because i knew exactly where they were at all times you know that kind of stuff but there's that aspect that i never was able to get into that online play 
uh, in the direction of online play and the way it works today, where you've got, you know, all these people coming in, it's just chaos and stuff. Like, I, to me, that's not fun. Like, I watch my friends that have Xbox Ones and Xbox 360s and watch them play their online play with Halo and the Call of Duty and the uh, Warfare games and stuff. And I just get sick. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, they're dying left and right and respawning. I'm just like, this does not look fun. Like, I have no idea what you're doing. The action is going so fast. It's like, you're just dodging bullets because you're running and praying nobody hits you. Like, I don't know. There's, it's like there's living in aspect. Chicago. Yeah, pretty much. There's something about there that is a complete disconnect for me. Like, I, I don't know. I never was able to enjoy that aspect. So I'm hoping someday I'll either get an old PlayStation 3 or get a, a new old PlayStation 4 or something like that and be able to play my friends that play these things all the time and tell me how great they are because I go to watch my friends and granted, most of them that I'm watching have Xboxes and stuff. And I'm watching one guy log in and then another guy have to log in on his account. And I'm like, wait, you can't just play the game? I'm like, no, you have to have your own account. Like, That's stupid. Like, whatever happened to, to, hey, my cousin's over and I want to play this game with him. I mean, really ridiculous directions for a lot of games. And I'm sure most of that is me just not following games and stuff and just seeing, you know, other gamers and moans about it and just coming up with my own opinion. But... I don't know. There's a whole aspect of, of that community feel that I used to get playing a multiplayer game that's just gone now as these kids are sitting in their, their basements and their garages playing it all by themselves with some 55-year-old in Canada that's saying he's some 16-year-old. Yeah, I will say the whole multiplayer aspect I never got into for a long time unless it was local. One of the only ways early on that me and my stepdad bonded was... For some reason, he got into playing Street Fighter 2 with me on the Super Nintendo. That's fun. You're kicking somebody's ass, and they're right next to you. So you're talking smack, but you're friends. You know each other, so the smack you're talking is, you know, you know the friendly banter type. Uh, I stayed away a lot of cases from the online multiplayer stuff. One, because I didn't really care for it for a long time. Uh, but also because of what's thought of as sort of the typical Xbox Live teenager, or preteen which is the bigoted, racist, you know, you blew me up so you must be gay and inward, and just throwing off all the profanity and stuff. There's the whole an anonymity of the internet mixed in with the, the adrenaline of killing shit or mm -hmm. killing stuff. He's going to keep beeping me, I'm telling you, or <laughs> blastering me. Um, it just, it's one of those things where the atmosphere wasn't good in a lot of cases for me, but I do find that there are some games where I'm able to get into and enjoy the multiplayer Partly because people aren't talking because they're not using the microphones or I've muted them. And the gameplay itself carries it through and makes it fun, especially when it's something like a capture the flag, not just a straight death match. Like I love or I loved playing the multiplayer on uh, War for Cybertron and Fall of Cybertron, the Transformers games. It's multiplayer, mm -hmm. but you're transforming into stuff. I enjoy the Destiny multiplayer, though it gets kind of monotonous after you know, a while. Titanfall is a great example on uh, the Xbox One and Xbox 360, where you've got the mechs that you can get into and you can run on walls, is do something different, make it fun, and give me a way to tune out the a-holes, and I'm going to have fun with it. But there's mm -hmm. nothing quite like having the other player sitting next to you. Having games with multiplayer that have no local multiplayer, as they call it, boggles my mind still sometimes. Not even split-screen why? Let people yeah. play when they're sitting there together. Um, some of the most fun my wife and I have gaming uh, together. 
aside from pulling up Marvel vs. Capcom 2 and having her bust out Cable and just stand in the corner shooting me from across the screen and cheesing her way through it, <laughs> uh, which I have to call her out on, of course, uh, is a game for the Wii U called Zombie U. It is asymmetrical multiplayer. The game itself is pretty cool. It got crappy reviews, but it's pretty cool because death actually means something. If you get bitten, you turn into a zombie. The next time you respawn, you're not, you don't have all your gear. Your gear is on that zombie you out there, and you need to hunt them down and kill them, or you don't get your gear back. Oh, <laughs> nice. Um, but the multiplayer on that is asymmetrical because somebody has that game pad, the one with the little screen on it. And they're using that to tap on it. It's almost like tower defense, sending zombies out to kill the other player. And the other players, more than one, are using regular-style controllers, and they're playing like a first-person shooter fighting the zombies. Or they're trying to do like a capture-the-flag fighting the zombies. But you can't play it online. It is only local. But it's ridiculously fun because we're sitting there, we're joking around about it. It's just not the kind of experience you tend to get these days unless you're in a dorm room and both of you have system set up and you're like yelling smack across the room but you're actually playing you know through the internet type of thing and that uh, is just so ridiculous that that that's what people have to do to have that style of gameplay that you have to have two tvs two of the systems the one game like that that i was never able to play multiplayer with and it was a playstation one game was dune 2000 it had a multiplayer mode but the only way to do it was through the system link cable which meant that i had to have another playstation one another tv and another copy of that game so i've never been able to play that one with a multiplayer but I'm in the same boat. We used to do the 007 tournaments, and then we got uh, 1080, the snowboarding game. And I'd say two months, me and my friends got into that game. And then we unlocked the, the silver metal dudes, the guys that had a weight to them that really flew down the hill. And my friend John, I mean, and this is a story I don't think I've ever told many people. <laughs> this is, this is going to be fun for you, I'm, I'm sure. Uh he was really good at that game, knew all the shortcuts, all this kind of stuff. And we're sitting there. It was me, my friend Israel, my foster brother, Adam, and my friend John. And we're trying to beat John. John just being a cocky little punk, smart mouth and all the way down and just blowing our butts. Well, we're finally getting to the point where we're just on his butt, almost winning. Almost over and over again, each one of us. And we're just like, and he just won't stop. Like all we want now for like the last two hours is just to take John down. You know, it doesn't even matter at this point just to say we did it. Well, my friend Israel, he's playing. He's almost got him. Like he's ahead of John. We're like, you got it. You got it. Last minute, he gets near the end and John comes like right next to him and does this little side swipe maneuver and knocks Israel's character down at the finish line and crosses. I am laughing hysterical. I mean, I'm laughing so hard. I'm holding my gut and I've got my eyes almost teared and Israel is pissed. And he just takes that Nintendo 64 controller and he's like, here, you kick his ass. And he flings it at me and I am just <laughs> rolling back. You know, my eyes are closed with tears and I'm starting to lean forward. And that controller hit me right in the front left tooth. And I still to this day remember watching four chunks of my tooth go flying in four different directions. And I immediately grabbed where I thought my tooth was going to be and felt nothing. And I mean, I did it so fast. My friends thought I was messing with them. I'm like, it's gone. And they're like, yeah, it's gone. And I'm like, no, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. And then they're like, pull your hand away. And I pulled my hand away and my tooth was gone. They're like, oh my God, it's gone. And of course, which busted us. We're just laughing our butts off. And 
you know, of course, I tell my dentist this to this day. You know, I, my new dentist was like, Wait, what's up with that tooth? And I'm telling him this story. And they're like, really? An Nintendo 64? I'm like, I still have the controller with the tooth and engine, man. <laughs> you know, stuff gets real when you're playing with your bros. And I just I've never understood that concept of going the other direction with the multiplayer where you need a whole nother system. When at that time, the systems were costing $500. Like, are you kidding me? I need to have another system to play with my buddy when he comes over? Ridiculous. Well, that's just it. It's the, it's the lack of the comes over part. It's the, oh, well, we can just do it online from different locations. It means you can play against the whole world, but you can't play against the person sitting next to you in the room. It takes away, to me, it takes away a lot of the, uh, the excitement that comes out of it, but yeah, yeah, whatever. And 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 I guess I should say because of you know, the whole Catholic Church joke on Rebels Roundtable. I'm sorry, Chicagoans. I don't mean you're gonna get shot much. Um, the the last thing I guess we should say on this because we sort of glossed over it is uh, the proprietary discs. Uh, to me, not a big deal. If, say, the Nintendo for the Wii U or for the Wii or for the GameCube want to use discs that only work in their system so they can sort of protect it from people illegally copying them, like what happened a lot with, for instance, uh, PlayStation games and whatnot. Um, But a lot of times the downside that comes with that, of having a proprietary disc, is that's the only thing that the system will read. So alone, amongst the last two generations of consoles... It's only been Nintendos that couldn't play DVDs. You can't hook up a Wii U or a Wii and play some friggin' DVDs because you've got that disk drive-based thing sitting there. Just can't do it. Um, so, I guess my last question for you, because I... Honestly, there are so many devices here, I'm not sure I care all that much about it, but for a while there, it frustrated me about the Wii, uh, the original Wii, that it wouldn't play DVDs like the PS3 would, um, or the Xbox 360 would especially when I only had a Wii, um, is, from your perspective, is does the benefit of having proprietary discs and not having all the piracy of the games, or as much, does that benefit outweigh losing a feature that would probably have been included, like being able to have a game system also double as a, a DVD player or something? Or is it something where the functionality and the options for the consumer should beat out the piracy concerns? I think, yeah, I think it should beat out the piracy concerns. Um, I know that that was one of the things that really irked me with the Wii. It was like, okay, you're reading a disc, but you won't play my DVDs? Like, what the heck? Uh, and I love that about my PlayStation 2. Although, I have to admit, that was the first function on my PlayStation 2 that stopped. I stopped being able to play my DVDs before I was able to stop being able to play my PlayStation 2 games. Right now, at this moment, my PlayStation 2 will only play PlayStation 1 games. My PlayStation 2 games are those hit and miss. I put them in, they they sometimes work. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think, you know, in a world that we live in now where piracy is so simple and so easy, I think, honestly, it shouldn't be a concern anymore. Because the ability to, to, to do it has been there for a long time, and it has only gotten easier. So I, I think that that shouldn't even be a, a concern anymore because the people that are doing it are doing it regardless of whether or not we tell them they should or shouldn't. I don't know. I mean, maybe that doesn't quite answer your question. That's well, it's true. I mean, that's it's an arms race, right? You know, you've got you know, this type of piracy going on, so we're going to beat it with this type of software, but now they're or hardware. Now they're going to find a way to get around that, and then we'll get around that. 
Uh, it's the way mm-hmm. I was just reading an article on Kotaku where they were talking about the development of the game Destiny over the few months that it's been out and how basically there'll be an exploit that's in the game. The players will figure out a way to use it and Bungie will come in and put in a patch and fix whatever it is so they can't exploit that anymore. Mm-hmm. So well, they'll just find another exploit to use. It'll be my up and they do it again. It's it, it's kind of like saying, haters gonna hate, pirates gonna pirate. But there, there's gotta be a fine line between how far are you going to go? I think it was this this current generation and the original plans with the Xbox One when it came to copy protection that finally pushed it over the line. When you can have Sony basically be the uncontested winner of a huge video game conference or, vi- or electronics and video game conference simply by posting a video of here's how you loan games to friends and have one person literally hand a disc to somebody, say thank you, and that's the entire ad and it blows people's minds how awesome it was, it's gone to an extreme. But, um, I don't know, it's something they're certainly going to have to deal with in the future. Well, this will be something that we're going to talk about in our next episode to a degree because we'll be talking about video, which is yet another thing very, very easy to pirate. Mm-hmm. Now, before we do that, I one other thing I want to mention, you know, my Wii turned out it was like this certain kind. My old roommate was just like, oh, you got the right one. Uh, I can't even remember which Zelda game he got. He got a Zelda game, he started the Zelda game, and the first thing he did with Link was walked backwards, and it initiated a hack that basically jailbroke my Wii, and then he was able to upload this mod program or something that as long as I used that, I could play any of the games that he burnt me to give me. And so I was I was loving it. I had He got me all the Guitar Hero games, a whole bunch of the Lego games, all that kind of stuff. My kids were having a heyday. And then the Force Unleashed 2 came along, and I couldn't play it without doing an update. As soon as I updated that, my Wii was bricked. So I, I guess I got what I paid for there. Uh, you know, now my Wii is just a glorified uh, Netflix. It won't play the video games uh, that are legitimately Wii games that I bought, even. Uh, another similar thing like that is I went from Toshiba with my old netbook, and we got a Dell laptop. And I discovered after the fact that Dell has some uh, back behind the scenes deal going on with the music industry and they removed the media record option uh, from their computers. So when I try to capture sound through Audacity with my Dell, that option's not available. I can't record the music and stuff coming through my headphones like I could with my Toshiba. So it was, and that was one of those things they did to stop internet piracy. Well, what they did was stop me from being able to do a lot of stuff with this computer. I go to my other computer to do a lot of my editing. Oh, I want Anakin saying, this is where the fun begins. Well, I got to use that old junker netbook that, that takes 20 minutes to open and takes another 30 minutes to get to Google. And then it takes almost 40 minutes to get to the website that has the video. Then I better hit record on Audacity now because by the time that video loads, we're looking at almost another hour gone by. But that's what I have to do to capture that audio. Thanks, Dell. And all he wanted was some porn. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you could now elaborate thing and all I'm thinking is, is uh, how can I twist this against the man? No. Uh, <laughs> All right, I think we've covered that. Holy crap, I mean, we've basically gone nearly two hours, I think, on this, and there was a point at which I think we were both scratching our heads on whether we could fill an entire single episode with these format topics. So it'll be next time when we talk about comics, video, not video games, but videos, and then bring in the aspects of what about the sign stuff and what about the adaptations and tie-ins uh, in when it comes to uh, multiple media for one story. 
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. I'd like to thank you all once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Now remember, you can always listen to our episodes that are streaming online on the Star Wars Report website's second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage and enjoy seeing your reviews there. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. In fact, you'll find we usually fire right back within minutes to an hour of you responding to us. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU legend questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we're going to mention you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. I know I'm going to be trying it here soon. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Legends universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any audiobook within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook like me, Audible just might be right for you. You think somebody at some point went, ooh, the Crystal Star, oh, son of a, ooh, the Bounty Hunter Wars trilogy, oh, son of a, (laughs) and they just kept having to to trade those in. I I was wondering that too, because it's like, do you get to change it in if you've read it all the way to the end? Do they have a way of tracking that? Or can you trade it in and then trade it in and then trade it in and trade it in because you keep picking turds? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe I'll have to try that out. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan, free at last! Say thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we're going to take crap. Because this topic's not totally about Star Wars. What are you thinking? Or that my champion of the multiverse is all wrong. I think anybody's figured out that when I do the voice like that, I'm basically using the idiot voice that was used in arguing with idiots from uh, Glenn Beck. We find out that these... Ah, excuse me. My cat is like not saying anything, but she keeps patting me on the arm. While I'm sitting here and I'm like, stop it, stop it, I can't say, stop it. We'll be taking a look at different types of formats for... Uh, pardon me? For different types of burps? <laughs> some are soda, some are beer. Came as a... And this is, by the way, also a quick chance for a quick reminder, folks. 
Don't forget, if you want to win the original two-disc widescreen DVD releases of all three prequel films from their original releases in 2001, 2002, and 2005, plus that bonus, the Story of Star Wars DVD that was released as a pack-in bonus feature for those buying Revenge of the Sith in 2005 at Walmart stores, you can still enter to win that all the way up until March 15th, the Ides of March, by emailing us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com, putting DVD giveaway in the subject line, and putting your mailing address, in case you win, inside the body of the email. Good luck!